Welcome to episode five of the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, presented by politicalflavors.com. In this episode, we're going to go back to a topic that we discussed in episode three, have some short takes before we get to our main topic, sex bots. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And you can find our website at feministcoffeehour.com. We're also on Twitter at femcoffeepod. So Karen, we want to go back to episode three for a bit. What's yeah. going on? So going back to uh, Bride's Name Revisited. So uh, by far, I've received the most feedback on that episode or that topic than anything else we've discussed. And I, I think we really kind of struck on the kind of dilemma that a lot of women are faced with right now. And also, I think we struck on this uh, idea of the difference between personal empowerment and feminist choices mm-hmm. and the kind of messy entanglement between those two concepts for women. One of my friends who I talked to after this episode said to me that she had not really considered that a woman could make an unfeminist choice if it was a personal choice for herself. And that uh, her under- she had never heard kind of choice feminism as a derogatory term. Mm-hmm. And so that was something that was really useful to talk about because I think in these conversations, it can really easily go to a place where we're just judging women for their choices again and again and again. There's never a good choice. There's never uh, the right choice or there is a right choice and whichever one the woman makes is definitely not it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, in that kind of double bind that I think we talk about a lot. Um, and is this just kind of another iteration of that? And so I think it's really important to state that, like, uh, in the grand scheme of things, I don't know that taking your husband's last name is uh, the death knell of feminism or an, a particularly egregious unfeminist choice. I guess the distinction for me comes from making a choice that you find personally empowering might be different than making a choice that's feminist. So Sarah Palin choosing to run might be incredibly empowering to her, but her platform is not empowering to women. And I think maybe uh, that's a bit more egregious of an example than the name change. I think that's a good example. Yeah. So personal empowerment is not the same thing as feminist action uh, in my mind. And so... I don't think that there's anything wrong with taking your husband's last name and being proud to take your husband's last name as a personal empowerment choice. But when you say, I did it for feminism because my choice is more important, that's where I start kind of getting bristly, Mm -hmm. you know, and saying, well, actually. Right. And when we were talking about this before, something that I was thinking about was the idea that there are values and goals that compete with feminism in people's own minds and in people's own lives. And sometimes um, the feminist choice is not necessarily the best choice for that person at that time. And if, if, if someone is going to choose to change their name when they get married or, or any other choice, they might have, or they probably do have very good reasons for doing so. And it's okay to pick other values if that's what comes out, whether it's personal empowerment, whether it's, 
you know, some other decision, I don't think that it's, um, it's not a blanket condemnation of those choices. Right. And I do think that it's useful to be very clear about that. Mm -hmm. Because I do think women's choices are especially scrutinized. And I don't necessarily think that that is a feminist action. Right. And I'm thinking about this, this comedy bit that Nicole Drussel, the comedian, did on, on YouTube, where mm -hmm. she said, feminists can't go on the internet because it's a haven for two things, pornography and women being mean to each other, usually about what kind of feminists that they are. And that's what <laughs> this whole conversation reminded me of. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that it's really kind of difficult once you get into these like personal decisions. Mm -hmm. And when the personal is political, you know, it gets hairy. And then whether or not you shave that hair becomes <laughs> imbued with so much meaning. <laughs> and so it can be perilous uh, to to seek advice as a woman from the Internet. I don't think we're going to do a shaving episode. <laughs> no. You never know. Never say never. <laughs> So anyway, <laughs> uh, I know you also got into a conversation on Twitter with somebody who brought up an interesting point that I think uh, you were really clearly responding to, and I'd love for you to kind of bring that to the episode. Yeah, sure. I didn't chime into this thread at all because you had a handle. My friend who runs the No Forbidden Questions blog on Twitter, at NFQ blog, um, she asked me, why are we making the assumption that keeping your maiden name and ha uh, is automatically more feminist than changing it? It's typically your father's name and it seems more patriarchal to assume the one that's real in quotation marks. And I basically said that I have three reasons that I think that changing your name when you get married is not feminist. And they're basically one that it's expensive, time consuming labor that's only expected of women. And just as a side note to that, I think that if men were the ones who routinely changed their name when they got married or at any point in time, it would be a lot easier. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but that's just a personal hypothesis that I have. Mm -hmm. Secondly, that a man's name comes from his father most of the time also, and so that doesn't make it any less his name. So because my last name is from my father's last name, that doesn't make it any less my name. And then finally, because this custom originated in the legal doctrine, uh, doctrine of coverture, in which a woman was legally transferred from her father to her husband, with a lot of connotations that she was property rather than a person. And so those are my main three reasons. I think one thing I wanted to acknowledge when you know you get into English common law and all that kind of stuff is mm -hmm. that in the United States and in Western Europe, we have this tradition, you know, it's based in English common law and whatnot, but it's not this way in other parts of the world. In many parts of the Middle East and in Asia, women do not change their names when they get married. In Latin America, many people have hyphenated last names. It's incredibly common. My dad actually has three last names when he, you know, came over here from South America. So I think that you know, this whole idea of seeing hyphenation is weird and bad or saying that you have to change your name because it's what everyone have, has always done is, is kind of ethnocentric and it's not necessarily true in many cases. So that's just kind of my whole take on, um, you know, the, the reasons that I don't think that it's necessarily a feminist act to change your name when, when you get married. 
Yeah, and I think that covers it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder uh, if you still want to follow up, please tweet at us. I'm really enjoying the engagement from our audience. And I've heard a number of personal stories about people's personal decisions about changing their last names, and it seems incredibly personal. And it seems to mostly have to do with the expectations of others mm-hmm. more than a personal choice, which I think really speaks to this idea that, that women's choices are public opinion-based mm-hmm. uh, and women's names are the property of others. Right. That's what can make it very difficult. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, if it gets people off your back and seems easier than a lifetime of uh, interpersonal struggle, who am I to judge your personal empowerment for that? But uh, don't get in my face and tell me it's feminist and screw you for questioning me. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I'm like, didn't you know choice feminism is the shit? <laughs> well, the thing about choice feminism, I think the easiest way to talk about it is with hyperbole. You know, you can talk about women to choose, choosing to do any number of ridiculous things, mm-hmm. like Sarah Palin or like nuclear war or anything like that, and then you can see how it falls apart. Right. I think where it gets difficult is with these highly personal and emotionally charged things. Mm-hmm. I agree. It gets very murky. So uh, my short take for today is to let everyone know about the organization Enough Said Detroit. Mm. And you can find out about them at enoughsaiddetroit.org. The Enough Said Project is a partnership for justice. They are an independent collaboration between the Michigan Women's Foundation, the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office, and the Detroit Crime Commission. And they want to raise money to test more than 11,000 forgotten rape kits so i think this is an amazing project i I know it it is too many and um i know that i have in the past when looking at you know charities for charitable giving i have come across the thought i wonder if there's anywhere that i can donate money to test you know backlogged rape kits and if you've ever had that thought here it is so go to enoughsaiddetroit.org to find out more about the project to make a donation and also to, you know, share the project and let everyone you know, um, know about it. Yeah, I would definitely say I feel outraged and powerless when I hear about rape kit backlogs. So this is a really beautiful way to, to kind of gain some power over the situation and feel like you can do something about it. Mm-hmm, definitely. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. You're welcome. So it's time for our main topic for this episode which we've been talking about since episode one. Karen, can you believe we're finally here? I know. Well, it's such an interesting topic, sex bots. So I want to open it with a, a joke that I came across along the way, which uh, I didn't find the attribution for. So if you have it, please tweet it at us, and I would love to attribute it to uh, its original speaker, writer, creator. Writer. So the joke is, why did God make men? Because vibrators can't dance. (laughs) So, uh, with that in mind... I've heard that joke. Oh, you have? Oh, I only... Well, I heard it with an alternative punchline, if you want to hear it. Yeah. It was, um, because vibrators can't mow the lawn. Oh! (laughs) I like that. Which is even more misandrist, I think. Yeah, I think so, because dancing is fun for, for both people. It's true. No one wants to mow the lawn. That's very I true. Don't. 
<laughs> All right. So, primarily, this basically started, there was some really off-the-wall response by Milo Yiannopoulos about a dubious organization, feminist organization, coming together against the existence of sex robots for fear of what it would mean for women in interpersonal relationships. And so it's so hard to even talk about this article. (laughs) Uh, Do you want to talk about it a little bit? Well, what I wanted to talk about a little bit was kind of you know, we're, we're looking at this in, in two kind of two ways. One is just the idea of sex bots themselves is interesting. And I know you've read some research that you want to share with us mm-hmm. about them. And the other is kind of the, the conversation online surrounding sex bots, especially in the so-called manosphere and manosphere and, and what that has to do with, with feminism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sex bots have, have always been a part of science fiction, mm-hmm. but what's changed recently i would say in the past 10 years with the with the rise of what um david futrell calls the new misogyny mm-hmm. is that uh, men have started to argue in earnest that women should be afraid of some kind of coming sex bot revolution mm-hmm. because sex bots are going to render women obsolete and i think that argument's ridiculous and misogynist and i think that really that's kind of what we're critiquing mm-hmm. not you know the existence of sex bots themselves you know a technology can be used in a good or a bad way mm-hmm. but this idea that you know that robots can replace people mm-hmm. entirely is pretty cruel and and uh and sexist yeah uh and i think it's a poor conceptualization of what people get out of interpersonal relationships Uh, And it kind of just shows a poor understanding of what people actually tend to like in interpersonal relationships, which usually involves being occasionally challenged uh, interpersonally Mm -hmm. and kind of having uh, a pattern of rupture and repair to kind of build bonds over time. But Mm -hmm. also, um, I think it's worth pointing out that women have had mechanical assistance with sex for quite some time. And I think it's been uh, compartmentalized pretty well for most women uh, when we talk about using vibrators or using, uh, you know, dildos or analog penises uh, sexually. It's for physical stimulation, you know? Like, it seems pretty clear that that distinction is drawn that, you know, your vibrator is not a companion in the sense an interpersonal relationship provides companionship. And I think it's curious to me that uh, kind of historically women can have, can have had this resource for so long and like the social acceptability of it is huge, huge part of that as well. Um, Cause it is socially acceptable for a woman to have a vibrator uh, compared to a man having uh, a comparable kind of analog of that maybe like a a a flashlight or whatever else uh well definitely here in the uh, feminist outer boroughs of new york city um but they were illegal in in texas until i'm pretty sure they're still illegal in places or something like that and can only be sold as novelties uh if the packaging Mm. says for novelty only but you can't sell it with the intent for it to be used sexually 
Or as a back massager or a neck massager. <laughs> yeah, if you're in the, the old people catalogs. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's hilarious. This woman has this phallic thing and she's touching it to her neck. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Wasn't that a, on an episode of the Tom Green show that he like gave his mom a vibrator and tried to ask her what she thought it was for? And she like used it to like beat some eggs or so. It was ridiculous. Anyway, <laughs> I really hope I'm remembering that correctly, and that's not just like some weird <laughs> fever dream. <laughs> but anyway, um, the idea that that women have had vibrators uh, for so long that it hasn't been considered a thing to replace men. I wonder why men kind of tend to go to this place where it's like, oh. If I could get sex from an accurate enough simulation of a woman, it would replace the race of women, which I think is telling of the mindset of the, of the particular men who make that argument. Yeah, I think it comes from insecurity. Yeah, and I think it comes from fantasy, like a, a, a struggle between telling the difference between fantasy and reality. You know, um, mm-hmm. I think there's a fantasy that you would really truly enjoy if you got everything you wanted from your partner without a struggle at all times. Mm-hmm. I think the reality is that, that 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 would feel very artificial. You know, that even if you gave them some kind of personality, if the AI was really good, it wouldn't replace interpersonal, interhuman relationships. Uh, but that being said, that's not... So some of my reading was on companionship robots, and I think mm-hmm. humans get a lot out of robots already, uh, interpersonally. It's interesting because I, when I say interpersonally, sometimes I feel like I mean between people, and sometimes I feel like just as a, an interaction with another consciousness. So, right. I think uh, when you look at how pets are members of a family right now, like humans can easily say like, this has a different consciousness than a human has, but I care very deeply. For its well-being and like I can feel a love bond with it and so there's certainly robots who fulfill that area in in human lives one I remember a long time ago I became really really curious about Paro who is a therapy robot for much in the way that like therapy dogs come to hospitals there are some people who have dog allergies uh, or for whom uh, an, an unpredictable animal might not be good around uh, for people who are, you know, maybe with dementia who can have a tendency to, like, shout or be violent. Uh, it's not really good for them to interact with a dog. And so Paro uh, is a Japanese robot that looks like a baby seal. It's adorable. And the reason that it looks like that, apparently, uh, a baby harp seal is because when they tested, they tried to make a cat, and when people saw the cat, they were like, oh, it's a cat. But then when they saw it move, they were like, oh, this is definitely not a cat, and it makes me really uncomfortable. But people don't know very much about how seals interact. And so, because they don't already have this idea of, like, this is how a seal should move, the animatronics of the robot don't aren't off-putting. So it looked like that weird army six-legged thing that walks on hills and it can't look at Oh god, yeah. I actually think that thing looks kind of adorable (laughs) in a really disturbing way. (laughs) I can't look at it. Yeah, oh, I like it. It scares me. Maybe it's like a bug thing. (laughs) Yeah, it's worse than a bug. (laughs) Because I know I'm smarter than a bug. I don't know if I'm smarter than that. (laughs) 
They probably are. I think it's very interesting, though, the what you're saying about will robots, will we have relationships with robots the way we have relationships with pets? Mm-hmm. Because I think, actually, um, I did not see the movie AI, but I did see an interview with Steven Spielberg about the movie. Mm-hmm. And someone was asking him, someone just saying, like, I don't buy it. I don't buy that, you know, people will interact with robots in that way. I'll interact with my dog in that way, but not a robot. Mm-hmm. And Steven Spielberg said, but your dog reacts to you your dog loves you it'll like cuddle with you and kiss your face and be nice to Mm you said but imagine if you had like a toothbrush and every day when you were brushing your teeth it could read your vital signs and tell your mood and talk to you in a way that corresponded with that mood and read you your weather and ask you questions about your how well you slept or whatever he said you'd get attached to your toothbrush and what i think was interesting about that is that that was almost a prediction of smartphones Hmm. And the way people kind of feel attached to their smartphones, like it's an extension of themselves. I think they did a survey. This is actually right when they were first getting popular. So it was a few years ago of what percentage of people admitted to sleeping with their smartphone in their bed or on their pillow next to them at night or stroking it or like talking to it or um, anthropomorphizing Mm -hmm. it in some way saying, oh, my phone must be feeling X or whatever. So oh, really? I, I think that that we do see that, that people are starting to have that have that relationship and smartphones don't I actually that's not true. I do that. Um when I ask Siri for directions, just maybe it's just because I'm programmed to be a very programmed. Maybe it's just because <laughs> I'm socialized to be a very polite person. I'll say thank you to Siri. Oh, I do the same and, thing. <laughs> Yeah. I have to mention, and, uh, I have my Siri program to be the male Siri voice. Me too. Really? Oh my God, <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> I, I did it as a joke mm-hmm. to make Adam jealous, and then I kept it. <laughs> because sometimes when you say thank you, he'll be he'll say, your wish is my command, and I'll laugh. And, um, you know, Adam will say, why are you saying thank you? It's a phone program. It's not real. So it doesn't know. It to but your, to me, I hear a human voice talking friend. to me, and I just <laughs> say thank you when someone tells me something I want to know. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if I had called information and asked for a phone number, well, now that's all automized. But if I had spoken to an actual person and they'd given me information that I wanted to know or a librarian, I guess is the closest thing, I would have said thank you. Yeah. So I say thank you to Siri. Oh, that's so funny. I just have male theory because I'm fed up with all the AIs being female. <laughs> uh, so are, are we going to talk about um, her or Ex Machina? Oh. Speaking of female AIs yeah, in popular culture. Yeah, Wives. That's right. Stepford Wives. That's another really good one, which I just watched, uh, rewatched on Halloween. The original one, the original, not the remake. Yeah. The remake sucked. I have a lot to say about that. Um, I The book was great. I think it's I've said this and I and I mean it a lot of the best horror stories mm-hmm. are feminist horror stories and I, I think yeah. the Stepford Wives is definitely one of them mm-hmm. um, okay. and I think it's interesting that speaking of the Manosphere one of their auxiliaries mm-hmm. the uh, the red pill women mm-hmm. have said repeatedly on different occasions that the Stepford Wives is actually a great example of an anti-feminist book in traditional womanhood and um, okay. I've, I've blogged about this but it's kind of a ridiculous argument. What they say is that um, that like if the Stepford Wives more like traditional and docile and uh, followed the cult of womanhood and domesticity, that they wouldn't have to be Stepforded. 
Yes. I knew it. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. No, it's okay. It, it, that that if you know Joanna hadn't, you know, liked having hobbies outside of her her marriage and her kids, then her husband wouldn't have killed her and replaced her with a robot. So that's the lesson that you should learn. Interesting. And I don't think that's the lesson that you know he said. I think he was kind of playing with what he perceived to be women's fears. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if there actually is a moral lesson there besides a generic like, wouldn't it be scary if? Yeah. Well, that would be terrifying, yes. Uh, I think being killed and replaced with a robot-likeness of myself. I mean, to be honest, after I'm dead, I probably don't care what happens with my likeness because I'm not there anymore. (laughs) But uh, I don't want to be killed because I have my own interests and agency. Well, I think what became especially scary in the book for Joanna was that she realized what was about to happen to Mm -hmm. her. Yeah. It's, It's kind of implied that some of the women don't know what that they're going to their death mm-hmm. when they mm-hmm. do, but she figured it out right. and she knew. Mm-hmm. And all she was trying to do before she escaped was to find her children and take them with yeah. her. Yeah, yeah. And because she stopped to do that, because she was being right. a good mother, right. she wound up getting killed. Yeah. And in that moment, she knew not only that she was going to be replaced by a robot, mm-hmm. but that this robot would be her children's only mother. Yeah, that's terrible. And when you go to you know. Yeah, the the monkey and Harlow and stuff like that. It's really creepy when you think about those implications yeah. with the kids. Absolutely. Ugh. I think Stepford Wives is kind of a good example of this idea that women can be replaced by robots uh, without people noticing or without any sort of difference between interacting with just a real woman who's a good woman. You know, uh... <laughs> I think that's definitely the way that it's been interpreted right. in popular culture. I don't know if that was the author's intent, but right. I think like a lot of things, it, it gets a little bastardized in, in pop culture. Right. And so I think it's really funny because I think the the article, the Breitbart article uh, that Milo wrote is kind of saying like, if there were sex robots, the Stepford Wives would become a reality, and you'd better kind of, if you're a woman, you had better start becoming docile now and becoming the sex bot, which I don't think a human will ever... It's funny, I think that we'll make AIs that seem like humans sooner than we will have humans that seem like robots uh, consistently. Mm -hmm. Uh, Humans have emotions... Women have agency, whether you kind of grant that to them or not. Acting like a robot is just not a realistic goal for people. Um, but some of the other things that that uh, kind of came up to me... And also, you know, I think that if sex robots do become a reality, which I think they will, I don't think that there's really anything shameful about having relationships with sex robots. I think it'll probably be enriching for certain people... Uh, who uh, struggle with sexuality interpersonally um, and it might be a really useful tool to kind of develop people's comfort levels with that Uh, also you know for people who are homebound or for other kind of external purposes uh, or reasons rather can't have uh, too many romantic interpersonal relationships or for people where it would be ethically questionable for uh, other people to have sexual relationships with them. Uh, 
people with severe mental retardation issues who are adults and have sexual urges, but uh, functioning adults, there might be ethical issues about sexual relationships between them, and then there might also be other ethical issues about sexual relationships between two people at different functional levels, but both severely mentally retarded. I mean, uh, I think sex bots in that scenario will be very useful uh, and very ethical, extremely ethical uh, in those situations. But um, I'm really focused on this narrative that sex bots will actually be the destruction of human interaction because women will never be as good as the sex robot will be for men. Which I also think is it's really amusing idea. because what about the male sex robots? Like, won't women be fine because they have their male sex robots who fulfill all of their needs as well? Well, if you go with the misogynist narrative, mm -hmm. they won't because the male sex robots will neither be able to earn money or inseminate them. And since, you know, kind of a, a line of, of reasoning. And, with sperm banks. Well, I, right. But you have still have to have, you know, some person producing the sperm that consents to give it to you. Why wouldn't men um, consent what, to that? Men don't sell their sperm now because they want to have sex with the sperm bank. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I, I know what okay, you're Okay, yeah, saying, no, I'm sorry. I just also know that. <laughs> I also know let the, me let you finish. The... the misogynist argument. The misogynist argument is that, that women, what women, they've figured out what women want. Mm. And what women want is uh, a sperm bank that's attached to an ATM. And since, uh, you know, a robot can neither print money or make sperm that uh that women won't be satisfied with it right okay and it when you were talking about um you know all of the the good ethical uses for sex robots i thought that that was that was a really good point and really interesting and you know coming back around to the comparison we're making of sex robots with vibrators in the way that they're seen culturally i have to bring up the uh sex in the city episode right the turtle and the hare <laughs> where they all get rabbit vibrators, which, if you know anything about sex toys, are made with phthalates, which are not good mm -mm. for your body, so don't use them. There are they pick the worst kind. healthy uh, ones with, that are similar design functionally uh, that do not have phthalates in them. Correct. And what I think was interesting about this is that it's almost the exact opposite of the, the sex bot narrative. In the sex bot narrative, really great sex bots are created. Men start using them instead of women. Men live happily ever after the end. Mm -hmm. In the turtle in the hair, Charlotte really, really likes her vibrator. And she says, I think I broke my vagina. And then she starts making excuses to not hang out with her friends to stay home and masturbate, which is not necessarily the most healthy thing to do all the time. Mm. But when she starts doing this, her friends freak out, go to her house and make her throw it out. They have an and I think that that's right. They have an intervention. It's, it's the exact opposite idea. You know, woman and vibrator live happily ever after. No, 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 no. We must intervene. It's bad. Well, there's something morally so, wrong about a woman who's not interested in men because she's sexually satisfied by her sex robot. 
But I do yes. think, I mean, I don't know. I do think we have this tendency to pathologize people who enjoy having sex with inanimate objects, which I think occasionally is pathological. <laughs> uh, but I think that there is uh, an area in our society where it is socially acceptable. It's not psychologically damaging and uh, can ultimately be very enriching in the right context. And so uh, we came up with a, a few other examples uh, the Futurama episode and I dated a robot correct with the Lucy Lubot yes which is a great episode of Futurama yeah it's good and I think it's a much more realistic take on robot relationships and how people feel about them which is that it's it seems a bit narcissistic to want to kind of actualize an unrealistic fantasy and then in public yeah in public and to, to walk around with your robot and, and say you know this is my girlfriend right as Fry does and I think this kind of gets to one of my other thoughts on this which is you know uh, your sex fantasies are private mm -hmm. uh, and when you make your sex robot your sex robot companion you're making that kind of private world public which I think is somewhat distasteful it's culturally frowned upon our culture it frowns upon these private fantasies becoming public. Uh, also, speaking of like uh, sex fantasies and robots, I was thinking, so there's Isaac Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics, which is one, a robot may not injure a human being mm -hmm. or through interaction allow a human being to come to harm. Say you have a sex fantasy that involves BDSM. Can your sex robot violate Asimov's Law of Robotics? And should Depends it. how good the AI is. Right. Well, the complexity of the AI is really interesting uh, because should an AI be built that violates this law where a robot can harm a human being for that human being's sexual pleasure, and then how does that robot read when that pleasure turns into actual uh, fear? And can a robot know well, a from word? <laughs> from all accounts, Asimov was kind of a perv, so he would have loved this question, especially from a woman <laughs> bold enough to ask it to him. But unfortunately, we'll never know what he thought yeah. about this. It's too bad, but that was actually something that like really made me go, hmm, I really wondered about this, and I'm still stuck on this. Like, I don't think it's a good idea to make a robot that can hurt people, but... I mean, also, who's to stop you from making a mechanized arm that has a paddle on it? <laughs> you know, that doesn't need much AI. It just needs a DC motor, you know? <laughs> but, um, and uh, so that was just the thought that came up when we were talking about sexual fantasies and sex robots. So you came up with a whole bunch of kind of uh, Star Trek related. Yeah, I'm a bit of a Trekkie and... Like most science fiction, Star Trek definitely dabbled in this mm -hmm. idea a little bit. The original series, there's an episode, I, Mud, where uh, Harry Mud takes these mining robots and he turns them into sex bots. And it's not the main focus of the episode mm -hmm. that they're sex bots. It is the main focus of the episode that he created these bots to serve him and to do everything for him instead of doing their work. Mm -hmm. And... It is one of the funniest episodes I've seen, mm -hmm. and 
you know, in the scene where they find out that these robots are, you know, able to have sex with him, they're the, the scene with Chekhov, and at first he's a little bit grossed out, and then he's kind of titillated. But in the end, it doesn't distract him from his work or fixing the situation. It doesn't make everyone want to stay with the sex bots. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, you know, ruin them. Maybe it's because they're the crew of the Enterprise and they're the, the best humans, <laughs> but... It, it does That's not um, ruin the Federation or, or, or Starfleet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, in, in the new generation of series, you know, we have the holodeck, which is a slightly different idea of sex bots because they can be programmed with any personality that you want to give them. And Next Gen kind of skirts around this a little bit. You know, we have one character... Barclay that always uses the holodeck to kind of get away from his his personal life and it's seen as an addiction and as a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, there's another kind of storyline where Jordy recreates a real woman and falls in love with her, but he's really in love with the holodeck version of her and not the actual person mm. and the problems that that causes for him. Um, and then the next two series in Deep Space Nine and Voyager, I think they took a little more liberal approach. Mm-hmm. Um, in Deep Space Nine, it's totally a nudge and a wink that people do have sex with holograms, mm-hmm. but it's seen as just another form of entertainment. Mm-hmm. And the exist of these, the existence of these holograms that anyone can, you know, go in and have sex with at any time doesn't stop people from falling in love, getting married, or having babies with each other. So. It's just something else that's that's there among, mm-hmm. you know, kinds of entertainment. And then in Voyager, which is a kind of a different situation because people are many, many years away from home. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, this is very popular. But, you know, there's... And it's funny because I saw this episode when I was a teenager and I thought that it was stupid. And it's kind of when I stopped watching the show during the first run. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where Captain Janeway kind of falls in love with the holodeck mm-hmm. character. But what she comes to realize is that it's totally okay for her to have this relationship because she can't date anybody on her crew. And the doctor, actually, who's a holo- who's also a robot, so that's kind of... <laughs> a robot's telling her it's okay to have sex with a robot. That adds a layer to <laughs> the weirdness. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I'm gonna have to think about that, but 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 in in this sense, um, it, it's seen as you know almost in that therapeutic sense that you were talking about before right. that 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 people use these holograms because they don't have as much access to other people as they want. There's only 140 people on the ship, and you know some people do pair off, but with those numbers, not not everybody's gonna find somebody. Of course. So that's kind of the Star Trek view of sex spots. I have not watched Enterprise, so I don't know what happened on that show. Well, it seems very healthy from the storylines that, like, yeah. Uh, oh, you made a face. You do you disagree? What? That it's a hell of a kind no, of No, 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 I do. I was, I was just thinking in comparison to the way that you know, the Manosphere is talking about sex spots, the way that they're depicted in science fiction is very different. Yeah. And I think the science fiction version uh, is really, I mean, the Star Trek version seems amazing. It seems very realistic in my mind uh, that they'll be used for entertainment. Uh, But also to bring it to 
uh, IRL, uh, mm-hmm. there already exists a sex robot, uh, according to its mm-hmm. marketer. Uh, Roxy, with a triple X, uh, because it's a sex robot. <laughs> um, <laughs> Roxy uh, is a sex bot that came out in 2010 um, that is uh, woman-looking robot (laughs) a certain kind of woman looking robot and you can order her you can order a pillow version of her that doesn't have any limbs (laughs) Uh, (laughs) or like the starter level version of her that has limbs but not as good limbs I'm not really sure what the difference is and then the, the, the deluxe version of her that has an AI that's supposed to kind of respond if you touch the sensors in her hand, she'll be like, oh, I like it when you hold my hand. You know, these, like, uh, responsive kind of uh, responses <laughs> that she gives to the people who interact with her. And yet somehow, there is still society. Five years later. So I do want to say that, uh, and it is true uh, that kind of the adult entertainment world pornography uh, are often early adopters of new technologies and I think this uh, AI inside an entertainment robot being taken on by uh, Roxy is I mean it's a non-event you know uh, in reality after a lot of posturing that, that there's a and maybe if the AI got better, it would be different. Uh, if it were less like, oh, you touched this part, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you touched this part. Good. Well, I, I wonder how high <laughs> the bar is before the the robot is better than than a person. Mm-hmm. And I I think that's interesting because clearly, you know, there's that documentary about men who have sworn off women for real dolls, right? Which don't have an AI. Right. Um, and there are other men that are happy with Roxy, and there are many other men who are saying, oh, no, no, that this is just the beginning. Eventually, there'll be one that can, you know, replace a woman. And I, I wonder how high that bar is, if they're just going to keep setting it higher and higher, mm-hmm. or if this argument will, will get old, mm-hmm. or if it will always be out there as kind of a silly threat, saying you right. better your man or he'll leave you for a it's robot it's so funny because even thinking about this if these men see what women want as uh, ability to do work and earn money and provide uh, offspring I think you're much mm-hmm. sooner going to get a robot that can perform menial tasks for money and then use that money <laughs> to buy sperm like that's already totally possible at this point uh so i think men are actually i mean in their conceptualization men are much easier to replace with robots a plus (laughs) thank you i think we can end it there i think that was the best analysis All right, which is perfect timing because my cat just laid down on my headphones wire, and uh, I don't want to spend the rest of the episode hunched over. (laughs) Well, you can find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, and you can find me at a Karen 
F-E-M-I-N-I-S-T-C-O-F-F-E-E-U-H-K-A-R-E-N. And you can email us at feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. And hopefully you'll give us some feedback about this episode or any other episode. Tell us what you think. Thanks for tuning in. Good night. Or day. Whenever you're listening. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Feminist Coffee Hour podcast theme song is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth. You can listen to her music at soundcloud.com slash Bridget Ellsworth. And you can listen to her other songs there as well. And if you like what you hear, you can give her a like or even a follow.